12 February 1943. The pilots of Marine Fighter Squadron 124 bring their F-4U Corsairs into the break over Henderson Field, Guadalcanal. Crews get to work immediately, and an hour later, the new and powerful Marine Fighters are airborne on their first combat mission. An escort of a PBY Catalina up the slot to pick up a couple of downed airmen. One of those airmen on the ground was previous podcast subject Jefferson DeBlanc, shot down on 31 January in his Wildcat on a mission that will earn him the Medal of Honor. Overhead in his Corsair would be Lieutenant Ken Walsh, who would soon become the first Corsair ace and also a Medal of Honor recipient. It's a time of change in the Solomons as the Allies shift to the offensive. In the air, the story will no longer be of Wildcats engaging Bettys and Zeros in the defense of Henderson Field, but of Corsairs ranging far up the slot striking at the Japanese. This series is a continuation of the stories of the Marines in the Solomons. This and the next several episodes will build on the previous season on Wildcats, so, although not essential, I will recommend listening to those first. Welcome to the Aviation Medals of Honor. The story of the F-4U Corsair begins with the birth of Chance Vout in 1890. Chance is a 13-year-old when the Wright brothers take their first flight in 1903. He is enthralled by flight, and when he heads off to college a few years later, he'll study aeronautical engines, yes, engines, not engineering, while also learning to fly. In 1912, he'll earn the 156 pilot's license given by the Aero Club of America. He'll work as an instructor pilot, while also expanding on his college experience by working at several of the early aviation firms. A few years later, he's ready to strike out on his own, and joins with Birdseye Lewis to found the Lewis and Bout Corporation in June of 1917. And yes, Birdseye was his real first name, and apparently not that uncommon of a name at the turn of the century. Anyway, the Lewis and Bout Corporation are hoping to build trainer aircraft for the U.S. military that had just entered World War I. By the end of 1917, they are already producing their first aircraft, the VE-7. While designed as a trainer, it performs better than expected, and both the Army and Navy go through several variants, including a fighter variant called the VE-7S, which would become the U.S. Navy's first fighter aircraft. On October 17, 1922, a VE-7 will be the first aircraft launched off the first U.S. aircraft carrier, the USS Langley. When Birdseye retired in 1922, the Lewis and Vought Company became simply Chance Vought, and would build a variety of fighters, bombers, and float planes for naval service in the 1920s, including the first Corsair, the O2U, a scout and observation biplane. While Chance Vought the person would die at an early age in 1930, the company he founded would continue its close association with naval aviation as war inched closer in the 1930s. Vought would produce the U.S. Navy's first monoplane dive bomber, the Vought Vindicator, which saw service introduction in 1937. Although most would be placed by the Douglas SBD by the beginning of the war, the Vindicator would see combat with the Marines at mid-May. 
where VMSB-241 would lose 11 of their 12 assigned Vindicators. Another Vought 1930s design, the OS-2U Kingfisher, was a highly successful observation float plane that would serve throughout the war. But it was with the F-4U Corsair that Vought would find their greatest success. So Vought had a proven track record and close relationship with the Navy when in February 1938, the Navy called for a new fighter built around the Pratt & Whitney R-2800 Double Wasp. The Double Wasp was a beast of an engine. It would power the F-6F Hellcat and the P-47 Thunderbolt fighters, as well as the A-26, B-26, and P-61. But it's the Corsair that's going to be the first to incorporate it. It's a big engine, and to get the most out of the engine, it's got to swing a big propeller. 13 feet, 3 inches worth of prop. The designers at Vought have to work through several issues in putting this big engine in a fighter. Prop size is number one. Number two, the Navy's design proposal specified maximum table speed. Well, airspeed is based on two things, thrust versus drag. They already had the largest engine out there, or max available thrust. So the only way to get more airspeed would be to lessen the effects of drag. Testing showed a mid-wing design that met the fuselage at 90 degrees would be the best for minimizing drag. Okay, but in order to have both the low-drag mid-wing design and the prop clearance necessary to operate that big 13-foot prop, the design would have to incorporate long landing gear, which is not exactly conducive to the abuse of carrier landings. The Vought designer's solution was a low-mount wing with a bend to rise up to the low-drag 90-degree ideal. The innovative bent wing design solved the min-drag, prop clearance, and landing gear problems. The Navy gives its go-ahead for a prototype in June of 1938, and the hard work of going from design to reality begins for Vought. It would be almost two years before the prototype, the XF-4U-1, flies for the first time on May 29, 1940. Early results are promising but the program suffers a setback when the prototype is damaged in a crash landing. Feeling the pressure of an increasingly likely war, Vought works around the clock and is able to get the prototype back flying again three months later. In October 1940, Vought's chief test pilot takes the rebuilt prototype to over 400 miles per hour, setting the speed record for a single-engine fighter. The Corsair in many ways is looking really good. It's fast, got a good rate of climb, and has nice high-altitude performance thanks to the two-stage, two-speed supercharger on the Double Wasp. But it's got its issues. The following is from the book, Harnessing the Sky, about U.S. Navy test pilot and chief of flight test, Frederick Tapnell. The design had serious flaws that rendered it unacceptable. The preliminary flight test report highlighted the difficulty of rolling the airplane, poor pilot visibility from the cockpit, and a sudden power-on stall. As the Corsair slowed to stalling speed and landing configuration, the left wing stalled first, dropping abruptly without warning and throwing the airplane into a spin that would spell disaster if it occurred on landing approach. Don Griffin, another test pilot, confirmed this risky phenomenon. Quote, The power on stall was vicious. The aircraft rolled violently and, even if one caught it early, it was almost impossible to bring it back to normal flight before one to two turns. Unquote. 
the situation was fatal on landing approach. The pilot had to remember to keep his approach speed well above stall speed. In summary, Commander Trapnell would say of the Corsair, quote, The F-4U showed very superior performance, but no airline control, a vicious stall, and terrible vision. Unquote. It's the lack of aileron control that concerns the Navy the most. It doesn't really matter how fast you can go if you can't turn. These aren't hydraulically boosted controls like you see in fighters today. In the Corsair, as with all others of the age, the controls work via direct mechanical linkages. The pilot throws a stick right, and a rod and a series of linkages move the ailerons. As speed increased, the forces required to deflect the control surface against the airloads also increased. It took the right combination of control surface size and linkages to get the responsiveness needed in a fighter at a reasonable level of control forces, and the Corsair wasn't there yet. As if the high around forces, the deadly power on stall characteristics, and the poor cockpit visibility weren't bad enough, the Corsair has other problems that need resolving. The prototype was designed with one 30 cal machine gun and one 50 cal machine gun in the nose, plus an additional one 50 cal in each wing. The air war in Europe showed that that was not sufficient. They needed a minimum of four 50 cals, preferably six. That many big guns meant wing mounts. Okay, but that led to the next problem. The fuel tanks are in the wing, and putting guns there would mean less fuel. Now the Pratt & Whitney engine was proving to be a real gas guzzler, and the Corsair was going to need every drop. Now despite its issues, the Navy wants it over the other two proposals in the running, but it can't accept it as it is. Bottom line, the Corsair needed a major redesign. After hashing it out with his test pilots, Commander Trapnell proposes moving the cockpit back to make room for a fuselage fuel tank, while raising the cockpit for better pilot visibility. The wing would need a major redesign as well, incorporating longer span ailerons and shorter flaps. While initially skeptical of some Navy pilots telling their engineers about aircraft design, Val gets to work and is back a few weeks later, now excited about the revamped Corsair. The new Corsair design increased fuel capacity from 273 gallons to 363 gallons, while still being able to incorporate six 50 cal machine guns and bigger ailerons into the redesigned wing. Bout said it would be ready for production by mid-1942, although the early production models will lack the raised cockpit for a few more months until the cages can be incorporated into the production line. There remains much work to be done. The aileron issues alone will take 110 test flights over a three-month period before finally meeting Navy approval. But Vout and the Navy had a winner. The first production Corsairs start to roll off the line in June of 1942. These are the early Corsairs, with the so-called birdcage canopy. The cockpit visibility isn't good, the power on stall hasn't been solved, and there is an issue with the landing gear that is causing the aircraft to bounce on a hard landing. For these reasons, it's decided to give the first Corsairs to the Marine Corps, where the shortcomings can be mitigated by being land-based, while permanent solutions for carrier suitability are explored. Therefore, when the first Corsairs are ready for fleet delivery in September of 1942, they go to VMF-124 at Camp Kearney, California, at the time a dusty little airfield in the ranch land outside of San Diego. 
Camp Kearney would one day become Naval Air Station Miramar, master jet base, and home to Top Gun for many years before the Navy gave the air station back to the Marines in the 1990s and moved to Lemoore in California's Central Valley. Much to the disappointment of many Navy fighter pilots used to the SoCal beach lifestyle. But back to the fall of 1942. There's a sense of urgency out at Camp Kearney to get the Corsair into action. Marine Wildcats are heavily engaged over the Solomons and are in desperate need of more and better fighters. Aircraft are ferried from about as fast as they come off the line. However, one of those early deliveries, flown by the previously mentioned Commander Trapnell, will take a little detour along the way. He's going to see for himself how the Corsair stacks up against its primary opponent, the Japanese Zero. The story of Commander Trapnell's little detour actually begins several months earlier, in June of 1942. As part of a coordinated attack with a strike on Midway, the Japanese Navy is going to launch carrier strikes at the American facilities at Dutch Harbor in the Alaskan and Aleutian Islands. So it's on June 4, 1942, that 19-year-old Petty Officer First Class Tagayoshi Koga takes off in his A6M20 to strike Dutch Harbor from the carrier Ryojo which incidentally would be sunk a little less than two months later, early in the Guadalcanal campaign at the Battle of the Eastern Solomons. Petty Officer Koga's Zero is struck by ground fire in the attack. He nurses his Zero to a crash landing on an island east of Dutch Harbor that had been designated for emergency landings by the Japanese. The idea was to land there, and after ensuring the aircraft is destroyed, to be picked up by a rescue submarine. Well, the Zero flips over on landing, and Kaga is killed instantly. Thinking Kaga may be alive in the wreck, his wingmen depart the area without strafing it to ensure its destruction. A little over a month later, on 10 July 1942, the Zero is spotted by a PBY Catalina crew on routine patrol. A recover team is sent out and determines the aircraft is salvageable. After recovery and repairs are made, it makes its first flight with Lieutenant Commander Eddie Sanders of Commander Trapnell's Flight Test Division at the controls on September 26th, right as the first Corsair deliveries are being made to VMF-124. Flight tests on the Zero show it to be highly maneuverable at low speeds, but it suffered from high elevator and aileron stick forces at high speeds, especially to the right, to the point where above 250 knots, fast rolls were, quote, physically impossible, unquote. The Zero suffers from the same condition the Navy and Valt worked so hard to alleviate in the Corsair. On October 1st, the two Navy test pilots match the Corsair versus the Zero on a series of flights. They find the Corsair is superior in every way except turning radius at low speeds. The higher and faster they flew, the more the gap widened. They also found the Zero's engine cut out in negative G conditions. The word went out to the pilots of the Pacific Fleet. If you find yourself defensive against the Zero, push over, get fast, and roll right. The Navy Test Center and Vought will continue to refine the Corsair throughout the war, but for now it's up to VMF-124 to prove its worth in combat. VMF-124 is a new squadron formed in September of 1942 under Commanding Officer Major William Geis. One of his early arrivals is Warrant Officer Kenneth Walsh. Major Geist must have been happy to see Walsh check in. Unlike most of his pilots, 
lieutenants fresh from flight school with less than two years in the Corps. Ken Walsh already had almost a decade in the Corps. He had enlisted back in 1933 and served two years as an aircraft mechanic before heading to Pensacola for flight training as a NAP, a naval aviation pilot. For much of the early years of naval aviation, there was a contingent of enlisted pilots. While the majority were officers, the history of enlisted pilots in the Navy went back to 1916 and 1923 for the Marine Corps. At times during the 1920s, enlisted pilots comprised up to 30% of the total pilot force. But that had trickled down over the years, and in 1933, the training of new enlisted pilots ended entirely. However, with the greatly expanded Navy in the mid-1930s, the NAP program comes back in 1936. Taking advantage of the newly reinstated program, Ken Walsh enters flight training, graduating in 1937, still a private. It must have been a weird dynamic for Private Walsh and the many other enlisted pilots. In the squadron ready room and in the air, he's a naval aviator, where experience and skill mattered more than rank. In the Navy and Marine Corps, as with many Air Forces, an enlisted pilot like Ken could find himself as a flight lead over officers that outranked him. Back on the ground, however, it's often enlisted spaces and duties. I've read several humorous accounts about how these enlisted pilots were sometimes treated, mostly revolving around some colonel wondering where his pilots are, only to find them on mess duty or digging latrines. Training of new NAPs ended in 1948. However, NAPs would continue to serve, with the last retiring in 1981. Anyway, following flight training, Ken Walsh deployed several times on carriers in scout observation squadrons before being sent to fly F-4F Wildcats with BMF-121 in December of 1941. He's eventually promoted to warrant officer and subsequently reassigned to BMF-124 in September of 1942, one of the initial cadre for the Corps' first Corsair squadron. He's commissioned a second lieutenant soon after. Let me pause here for a quick recap on the fighting in the Solomon Islands that I went through in detail in the six episodes on the Wildcat and Air Cobra. The fighting in the Solomons had its roots in the Japanese advance into the South Pacific early in the war. They moved on Rabol, on the island of New Britain, part of the Australian territory of New Guinea, taking the island from a small Australian contingent in February 1942. They would build up the defenses, using it as the point in which to strike out west into New Guinea and south into the Solomons, ultimately looking to put pressure on Australia and the Allied supply lines flowing there. As part of the Japanese movement into the Solomons, they began construction on an airfield on the island of Guadalcanal in the southern Solomons. This is detected by the Allies, who launched an amphibious invasion based around the 1st Marine Division on August 7, 1942, to take the island before the Japanese could get the airfield operational. The Marines are able to quickly take control of the airfield, though little else, and soon after get it operational as Henderson Field, home of the Cactus Air Force. Initially a motley mix of Marine F-4F Wildcats, SPD dive bombers, and Army Air Force's P-400s. The Marine Wildcats in particular are meeting almost daily raids by Japanese aircraft coming down the slot from Rabol. The Wildcats are holding their own, but their aircraft in many ways is inferior to the Japanese Zero. The Corsair is desperately needed. 
Back in California, VMF-124 is undergoing a frantic cycle of training and maintenance throughout November and December, until finally the squadron is declared combat ready on 28 December 1942. Squadron scales on 8 January 1943. They arrive at the Allied base at Espiritu Santo, the staging grounds for the fight in the Solomons, on 27 January. By this point, the Japanese have realized they have lost the fight for Guadalcanal and are planning a withdrawal. However, when 124 arrives on Espirito on 27 January, the island is still contested. 124 will begin a two-week training period for their final preparation prior to heading into the fight. The majority of the pilots only have about 20 hours in their new aircraft, so the time on Espirito is invaluable. Additionally, as with most early production models, there remained bugs to be found and ironed out in the Corsair. The radios are about useless due to interference from the ignition system. The ignition system is also causing an additional and more immediate hazard. There are incidents of it cutting out at high altitudes causing complete engine failures. That problem would almost end Walsh's combat career before it began when he had a complete engine failure at 29,000 feet over Espiritu. He takes his Corsair down to a water landing, the first for its type, and barely escapes when it flips over on him and rapidly sinks. Major Jack Cram, hero of the October 1942 defense of Guadalcanal, is there in his PBY to pick him up. Walsh vows to bail out instead of ditching again in the future. The Marines make the most of their two weeks on Espirito, fixing the ignition problems and gaining a little more experience in their new fighters. It's while 124 is training on Espiritu that the Japanese pull their remaining forces off Guadalcanal, and on 9 February, the island is declared secure. So now the Allies own Guadalcanal and its all-important airfields, Henderson Field and the adjacent Fighter 1 and Fighter 2. But the rest of the Salmons were still under Japanese control. In the big picture, you have General MacArthur in the Southwest Pacific Theater fighting in New Guinea, and Albert Halsey in the South Pacific Theater fighting in the Solomons. It's a two-pronged assault, planning on meeting at Rabaul on the island of New Britain, sandwiched between the Solomons and New Guinea. Rabaul was the major Japanese base in the South Pacific. It's a fleet anchorage, logistics hub, and home of the 11th Air Fleet that had dueled with the Cactus Air Force throughout the Guadalcanal campaign. Rabul had been the staging point for the Japanese in the Guadalcanal and New Guinea campaigns and was the ultimate prize in the South Pacific. The Allies' plan to deal with Rabul is called Operation Cartwheel, which has MacArthur advancing up New Guinea in the west, while Halsey advances up the Solomons from the south. I'll leave the story of MacArthur's fight for another time. For now, we're talking about the push up the Solomons. In order to threaten Rabul, Halsey needs to clear the Solomons through a series of amphibious assaults, for which he needs air superiority. Following the capture of Guadalcanal, Halsey consolidates his position in the southern Solomons by moving into the unoccupied Russell Islands adjacent to Guadalcanal on 21 February. Next up is going to be the New Georgia group of islands, 150 miles northwest of Guadalcanal in the central Solomons. It's not going to be easy. Here the Japanese had airfields and troop concentrations at Munda on the main island of New Georgia and Vila on Columbara. The next and last major stop in the Solomons would be Bougainville Island 
the largest of the northern Solomon Islands, where the Japanese have a major air base at Kahili. Much of the aerial combat through the end of 1943 will take place over these airfields as attack aircraft and bombers with their fighter escort try to shut down the Japanese air threat. So that's where the situation stands on 12 February 1943 when VMF-124 arrives on Guadalcanal to join the Cactus Air Force, which will be soon known by the more official-sounding Air Solomons under Admiral Charles Mason. The new arrivals don't waste any time, and an hour later, Ken Walsh and 11 others are airborne, flying cover for the PBY pickup of Jefferson Blanc, referenced in the introduction to this episode. It's uneventful as is a bomber escort mission the next day. The following day, February 14th, the Corsairs will meet the enemy for the first time. They are assigned to escort a B-24 raid on Kahili Airfield on Bougainville. It's the farthest up the slot Allied fighters have ranged to date, and it doesn't go well. In what was called the St. Valentine's Day Massacre by aircrew, the raid is intercepted by approximately 50 Zeros. Two B-24s, two P-40s, the entire top cover of four P-38s, as well as two of VMF-124's Corsairs are shot down against the loss of only three Japanese Zeros. One of the Corsair pilots is rescued, but the other would be the squadron's first combat loss. It's not a very auspicious combat debut for the Corsair, and will be one of the few air-to-air engagements during VMF-124's first combat tour which lasts from February 12th through April 4th. During that period, they are flying fighter sweeps, combat air patrols, bomber escorts, and the occasional strafing mission, but large-scale encounters with the enemy are rare. It seems like both sides are taking a breather following the fall of Guadalcanal. The next large engagement won't happen until April 1st. On that day, Walsh's flight lead for a flight of seven. They're headed back home to Guadalcanal after handing off responsibility for the combat air patrol over the Russell Islands to a flight of P-38s, when suddenly the radios erupt with calls for help from the six P-38s who've just been jumped by about 25 zeros. Walsh turns his flight around and heads back into the fight. He shoots down two zeros and a Val dive bomber before his canopy is blown off by a 20mm shell. His flight adds another victory to his three for a total of four kills with no losses for 124. It's a positive end to what had been a somewhat challenging first combat tour for VMF-124, who depart the island for a rest and recuperation period on 4 April. Operating a new type is never easy, more so for 124 as the first squadron to fly the Corsair. Inexperienced pilots and maintainers made things difficult. On top of the squadron's inexperience, Due to a logistical snafu, the majority of the ground echelon doesn't even arrive on Guadalcanal until mid-March, halfway through their first combat tour. They're trying to operate a full combat schedule with an inexperienced skeleton crew. Pilot from VMF-214, squadron later famous as the Black Sheep under Pappy Boyington, but for now known as the Swashbucklers and Flying Wildcats, would say about 124, quote, during the time that their tour coincided with ours on Guadalcanal, VMF-124 rarely had more than four aircraft in commission. Unquote. It's a rough beginning for the Corsair and 124, who see the loss of two pilots in operational accidents during this first tour, with an additional one lost in combat. 
They are relieved by VMF-213, who had been back at Espiritu transitioning to the Corsair. The Marines are transitioning units as fast as they can from the Wildcat to the Corsair, and by 2 July 1943, they will have transitioned all eight of their fighter squadrons in the Solomons to the Corsair. But for now, VMF-213 will take over as the sole Corsair squadron in the Solomons. Air Solomons will remain mostly a Marine Wildcat show, with some Army Air Forces P-38s and P-39s, as well as the Royal New Zealand Air Forces P-40s and occasional U.S. Navy Wildcats sprinkled in. Now the relatively quiet time of February and March that VMF-124 had experienced was about to change. The Japanese had been chafing at their loss of Guadalcanal. Imperial headquarters actually orders Yamamoto to take revenge for the loss of Guadalcanal. Now revenge is never a good military strategy, and it's not going to work out great for the Japanese here either. Yamamoto's plan is called Eye Operation. For this operation, he will strip his carriers of aircraft and have them join the 11th Air Fleet of Rubol. Doing so gives them almost 200 fighters and 100 dive bombers, in addition to 72 Betty bombers. It's a pretty significant force for the Pacific Theater at this point in the war. Eye operation begins with a preliminary fighter sweep made on 1 April. Part of this force is what Ken Walsh engaged to get his first three kills, but the real show won't be until 7 April when a force of 67 Val dive bombers covered by 110 zeros are reported by coast washers inbound of Guadalcanal. Condition very red is broadcast out to Guadalcanal units. 76 Army, Navy, and Marine fighters rise up to meet them. 28 of 39 aircraft credited go to the Marines. The sole Corsair squadron, VMF-213, gets only a single kill. The two Wildcat squadrons, VMF-214 and 221, claim the rest. Lieutenant Jimmy Sweat of 221 bags seven before having to ditch his Wildcat, a performance that will earn him the Medal of Honor. It was the last hurrah for the Marine Wildcats as their numbers were steadily declining as squadrons transitioned to the Corsair. April 7th would mark the last kill for a Marine Wildcat. For their part, the Japanese managed to sink a tanker, Corvette, and a destroyer. A parallel strike into New Guinea managed to sink a tanker and damage a few other ships, but Operation I failed to take control of the skies for the Americans or to change the strategic picture. Yamamoto would call off the operation on 16 April, sending the Navy planes back to their carriers. Two days later, the Betty bomber Yamamoto was flying in was intercepted by P-38s of the 339th Fighter Squadron flying off Guadalcanal. The architect of the Pearl Harbor attack died when his Betty was shot down and crashed into the jungles of Bougainville. 124 and Ken Walsh returned to Guadalcanal on 10 May for their second combat tour. By now, Guadalcanal was starting to take on the appearances of a stable rear area. The tents had been replaced with consonant huts, there was new matting for the runways, and even movies had made it to the island. The Allies had an airfield up and running on the Russell Islands by now. The remaining Marine Wildcat squadrons would stage out of there, extending the range up the slot, while the Corsairs with their longer legs remained on Guadalcanal. The lull in the action following the fall of Guadalcanal was over, and things were heating up in the air. On 13 May, 
Corsairs of VMF-124 and VMF-112 would combine to splash 15 zeros over the Russells. Ken Walsh is credited with three, making him the first Corsair ace with six total kills. However, the good news is tempered by the loss of 124's CO, Major William Geis. The respected leader was shot down and killed in the swirling dogfight. Four other Corsairs were also shot down, showing that while the Corsair had shifted the aerial advantage to the Marines, the Japanese continued to be dangerous opponents. On a strike escort mission to Kahili on June 5th, Walsh bags a zero and a float plane, bringing his total to eight. 124 is about to complete their second combat tour when the last enemy daylight bombing raid on Guadalcanal comes on 16 June. It involves at least 90 planes, mostly zeros and vowels. It's a big fight, but the Corsairs miss out on much of the action. With the combined efforts of 124, 121, and 122 only claiming 8, while Navy F4F Wildcats claim 31. While inflated as usual, the losses are enough to deter the Japanese from any additional daylight attacks on Guadalcanal. The following day, 124, the pilots anyway, depart for R&R, &R, their second combat tour complete. It's during their R&R &R period that Admiral Halsey takes its next step in the Solomons, striking out against the new Georgia group. The battle began on 30 June as Marine and Army units hit the beaches to take some of the secondary islands around New Georgia in support of the main assault on New Georgia. That main assault begins on July 2nd, with the airfield at Munda Point being the focus of the assault. It's a mostly Army force that goes ashore five miles from Munda Airfield, and it doesn't go well. The Allies are going to find out what the Japanese learned on Guadalcanal that advancing to the attack through the jungles and terrain of the Solomons is a difficult task. By mid-July, the American advance is stalled. The troops are tired and hungry, and morale is low. The Army commits an additional division to the attack, which finally breaks the stalemate, and on 5 August, the airfield is finally taken. The bulk of the Japanese forces evacuate to neighboring Kalimbangara Island, the critical airfield at Munda was in Allied hands, but casualties were heavy, as was the criticism of the Army leadership. In the end, it was just brute force that carried the day. Munda and New Georgia had fallen, but the Allies faced a large and heavily fortified contingent estimated at 10,000 troops on neighboring Kalimbangara. It wasn't going to be an easy trip up the Solomons. Now VMF-124 had returned to Guadalcanal for its third and final combat tour towards the tail end of the fight on New Georgia. They start their third combat tour on 29 July, escorting bombers to Kalimbangara. They have missed a lot of the aerial action over New Georgia, which had seen claims made for over 350 Japanese aircraft shot down. They'll get plenty of their own soon enough, though. On 12 August, Walsh gets two zeros, and a probable, in action over Chozai Island near Bougainville. Meanwhile, since taking the airfield at Munda, Navy Seabees have been hard at work getting it operational again, and by 14 August, 124 is flying off Munda. It's a hellish spot, with the smell of dead bodies permeating the air, along with the thousands of flies accompanying them. Occasional artillery and sniper fire 
as well as nighttime harassment raids, robbed the Flyers asleep and harkened back to the early days on Guadalcanal. After the hard fight on New Georgia, Halsey has made the wise decision to bypass Colin Mangara, the first example of the island-hopping strategy the Allies would use throughout the remainder of the war in the Pacific. Instead, he attacks nearby Vela La Vela on 15 August. The Japanese react fiercely, and a morning mission from 124 on cap over the beachhead splashes 10 aircraft without loss. Ken Walsh is airborne with seven others on the afternoon cap when approximately 30 Japanese aircraft are spotted. The outnumbered marine aircraft pitching in the mix of zeros and vowels. Walsh will add three victories to his tally, but his Corsair is so badly shot up it will never fly again. While the fighting in the air is fierce, the Japanese are not on Vela La Vela in force, and the Allies quickly gain control, although there is sporadic fighting until the island is finally completely secured in October. Engagements continue to be frequent now. On 21 August, 124 is credited with five victories, including one more for Walsh. On the 23rd, Walsh is again involved, scoring two of the five zeros splashed, plus a probable. 25 August would be another big day for 124. Not because anything special in the air, but because they were finally pulled off Munda and sent back to Guadalcanal. It was the end to a hellish two weeks for the aviators. On 30 August, 124 is tasked with a bomber escort mission to the airfield at Kahili. Walsh takes off out of Guadalcanal with 124, but his supercharger fails. He's close to Munda at the time and lands there to try to get a replacement aircraft. Take your pick, says the officer in charge at Munda. Walsh hops in one and is airborne again just a few minutes after landing. He heads alone towards Kahili, hoping to cut the corner and rejoin the bombers. He does finally catch the bombers right as they begin their attack run. There's approximately 50 Zeros lining up to attack the bombers with no escort in sight. Despite being alone, Walsh doesn't hesitate to enter the fight. He quickly downs two Zeros before the Japanese realize the lone fighter is in their midst. The tables turn quickly and he's on the defensive now. His Corsair takes multiple hits before other Corsairs arrive to take some of the pressure off. Even so, they're still at a numerical disadvantage, but Walsh manages to splash two more zeros before disengaging with a heavily damaged fighter. He's able to keep it flying for now, but it's apparent he's not going to be able to return his borrowed aircraft to Munda. Despite his earlier vow not to ditch into Corsair again, he puts his down in the water off Vela the Vela. He's rescued soon after by a boat launch from the nearby island. His four victories that day take him to 20. VMF-124 ends their third and final combat tour a few days later on 7 September. Walsh is awarded the Medal of Honor by Franklin Delano Roosevelt in a White House ceremony on 8 February 1944 for the missions of 15 and 30 August. Over those two days, against great odds, Walsh would splash a total of seven Japanese aircraft. His Medal of Honor citation reads, For extraordinary heroism and intrepidity above and beyond the call of duty as a pilot in Marine Fighting Squadron 124 in aerial combat against the enemy Japanese forces in the Solomon Islands area. 
Determined to thwart the enemy's attempt to bomb Allied ground forces and shipping at Vela de Vela on 15 August 1943, First Lieutenant Walsh repeatedly dived his plane into an enemy formation, outnumbering his own division 6 to 1, and, although his plane was hit numerous times, shot down two Japanese dive bombers and one fighter. After developing engine trouble on 30 August during a vital escort mission, First Lieutenant Walsh landed his mechanically disabled plane at Munda, quickly replaced it with another, and proceeded to rejoin his flight over Kahili. Separated from his escort group when he encountered approximately 50 Japanese Zeros, he unhesitatingly attacked, striking with relentless fury in his lone battle against a powerful force. He destroyed four hostile fighters before cannon shellfire forced him to make a dead stick landing off Vela La Bella, where he was later picked up. His valiant leadership and his daring skill as a flyer served as a source of confidence and inspiration to his fellow pilots and reflected the highest credit upon the U.S. Naval Service. Ken Walsh would return to combat in the Corsair with BMF-222 in the Philippines and Okinawa, where he would score his final victory, his 21st, over a Japanese kamikaze. He went on to command a transport squadron during the Korean War before retiring from the Marines in February of 1962. He died on 30 July 1998 at the age of 81. VMF-124 would return to the war with another first, this time becoming the first Marine squadron alongside VMF-213 to be based on a fleet aircraft carrier. As part of Carrier Air Group 4 on the USS Essex, 124 would participate in combat operations in the Philippines, Formosa, Okinawa, and Iwo Jima, as well as striking targets on mainland Japan. Post-war, 124 continued service as a reserve squadron, first in the Corsair and later in the A-4 Skyhawk as VMA-124. In 1994, they were once again designated a fighter squadron, VMFA-124, and scheduled to receive F-18 Hornets. Plans changed, however. The new aircraft never arrived, and the squadron was officially stood down in 1999. Vought Aircraft would continue to produce naval aircraft post-war, the most famous being the F-8 Crusader and A-7 Corsair II of the Vietnam War. After a series of acquisitions, Vought now exists only as a division of Triumph Aerostructures. Thanks for listening, and Semper Fi.